some of it is is basic analytics, but what happens to that basic analytics down the line, we don't really know. But it sounds like what you're saying is it's really about the merging of the databases that's the new frontier. There's always been this data greed in trying to kind of understand consumer and political behavior. It's an ever hungry beast. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Quinn Norton is one of the sharpest watchers of cyber culture we have, and she recently wrote a great primer on how online tracking works when you navigate the web. On this week's show, a look at all those algorithms running in the background of your browser, including when you go to our site, 538.com. But before we talk about how Google and others are monitoring your activity, a little on how YouTube continues to dominate your time. It's a number that caught our eye this week, the significant digit. Excuse me. Uh, can I tell you a number? Uh, sure. So the number is uh, 40, which is 40 minutes, which is the average amount of time that someone watches a video on YouTube on their phone. Okay. Did not know that. Everything on TV, everything that you see in the media eventually finds itself on YouTube and it's all there. So I can I can see why people would watch it. And what do you make of that number for 40 minutes? Yeah, well, I mean, people are on the subway for a lengthy period of time and there's got to be something to keep you busy rather than just sitting there, you know. Have you ever sat in front of your uh, phone for 40 minutes and watched something? Uh, not in front of my phone. I don't like squinting. <laughs> Okay, a little more context on that stat now with Stephanie Roos, editor for audience development here at 538, who sort of thinks about this kind of stuff. Uh, Stephanie, any reaction to that woman's comments? Sure. It's obviously a huge number that created quite a stir when uh, Google announced it in the last earnings call. It was not only just the, the sheer time spent watching video on a phone, but the fact that so much time is being spent watching video along with the audience going so dramatically. So they also announced that their audience in that key age bracket of people who are 18 to 49 now is larger than the audience in that age for any cable network. Um, and that people are also still using the YouTube homepage as a way of discovery. All of that implies that the phone is becoming a television. That woman we heard from, by the way, Sejal Mukherjee, she also said that people are watching maybe while they're commuting. Do we have any indication of where people are spending this 40 minutes you know, squinting into their phone? We don't have a read of that from what YouTube has released. We also don't have a great read of what they are actually watching for that 40 minutes. Um, and, and it's interesting that that's actually information that YouTube hasn't shared. Uh, because if you look at the overall watch numbers on YouTube, about 40% of all the videos watched are actually music videos, an area that YouTube has sort of quietly become quite dominant in. And if we think about that extensive watch time, that almost an hour spent on a phone, as someone who's sitting there watching or actually just listening to, to music videos, it's very differently different than someone actively watching video. And just to be clear, no one is, is sitting there and watching like a 40-minute no, video. No, no, no. You know, YouTube a few years ago made a, a very distinct decision to uh, rank video and search results based on what they call watch time. And its contribution to watch time isn't, you know, whether or not someone watches 80% of a video to completion or how many people get from 
the first moment of the video to the very last, but it's how much does that video contribute to someone's total time spent on YouTube? So that started to incentivize things like creating channels where videos were linked together, creating series on a single topic. And what about that squinting question? Because if you've got 40 minutes to spend devoted to YouTube, presumably maybe you're in a position to switch to your iPad or even a real TV or a computer screen. Are people really sitting there choosing to watch into that small squinty screen? Yeah, that's what these numbers imply. And, you know, we we do have to remember that if you compare the time that people spend watching video on YouTube, it still is much, much smaller than the amount of time that people spend watching television a day. People on average watch television for about five hours a day, which is far, far larger than 40 minutes. That being said, the overall time spent on smartphones, particularly in younger demographics, continues to grow. So perhaps more folks are going to have to get glasses. (laughs) Stephanie Roos, thank you very much. Thank you. And now a conversation with Quinn Norton, longtime journalist, internet activist, and watcher of the surveillance state. She's also What's the Point's first ever guest joining us from Luxembourg, really the first ever guest joining us from any of the countries that border Belgium. Quinn Norton, welcome to 538. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a very simple question. What is a cookie? Uh, A cookie is just a little tiny text file stored on your computer by your browser uh, that is actually written by the server that your browser is connected to. And it could just be a few numbers. It's it's a super simple thing that was invented in 1995, and I was doing web work then, and we were thrilled because a browser has what's called a stateless connection. It never really knows. It's like it's like it's like that main character in Memento. It never actually knows what's going on because it has no sense of the past or the future. Uh, so since all of our browsers are little um, amnesiacs, this little text file that gets written onto your computer became the way that we could have what was called a session memory. So the fact that Amazon knows who you are every time you come back, that's because it wrote a cookie. And it reads that cookie again and says, ah, you, oh stateless browser, like the dude from Memento, you are this person who we have a long-standing financial relationship with. Uh, Without that cookie, we could never actually know who you were from one time to the next, especially since often your IP address is changing all the time with many ISPs or if you're coming from your phone or you've moved your computer to a cafe. That cookie let us create persistence and memory for the first time on the web. You go to a particular site, you see images, you see headlines, you see links, maybe a video, but behind the scenes, there's this torrent of activity going on. So what's happening is that you've connected to one server on purpose. Like you've said, hey, I want to just look at this little sports article on ESPN or something like that. And you get your little sports article and invisibly your computer is now doing business with over a dozen other computers, other servers on the internet. And, um, and that business is getting done. And to some of it is, is basic analytics where they're trying to figure out like how long people are staying on the page, um, what countries they're connecting from, so on and so forth. But what happens to that basic analytics down the line, we don't really know. And is it correlated with you? But it sounds like what you're saying is it's really about the merging of the databases. That's the new frontier. 
I think that that's the thing people understand the least. I mean, merging databases goes back to basically the moment there were two databases. We've been uh, putting together voter roll databases with commercial activities since long before anyone was really on the internet. So trying to kind of understand, and polling data and so on and so forth, trying to understand how certain people will behave both for commercial and political reasons goes back to basically having any kind of technology to track people, even going door to door and asking them. And now we just, there's always been this data greed in trying to kind of understand consumer and political behavior. It's just, it's this, it's, it's an ever hungry beast that wants to understand more about you. Um, and a lot of it has to do with reacting to what people want, but uh, a lot of it also has to do with what they call taste making. So you, you wrote in this piece, you said the holy grail of a surveillance company is to not just reflect your taste, but to start to create it. What do you mean by that? It's not always as, as either as sinister or as obvious as like mind control kind of things. A lot of it is like when you think about, you can actually like take a globe and color it in on Coke versus Pepsi. For some reason, we can color the whole planet for brown sugar water. And I don't think they just drink it because it's sugar water. There are many forms of sugar water. Uh, but this one has this iconography. It has this sense of community. It has this sense of identity tied but to it. isn't that how taste has always been created? I mean, it's, it's a social construct, right? I mean, I'm sure there's something that you like to drink. And you weren't born a fan of that thing. But it's certainly before the 20th century, our taste tended to be created by our cultures much more than they were created by companies. But why isn't the web that you browse and the world that you live in – I mean that is our culture, right? And companies are part of that. Part of that culture. But I think that you can look back in history and see all sorts of points where, for instance, the government decided we were all going to become Christians in like ninth century England or something like that. Um, and that's – a historical fact where taste was made by power, but it's one we wouldn't be terribly comfortable with now. So taste making now is not done by kings. It's done in a much more subtle and persuasive way. Were there people who resisted, you know, every time the king announced uh, to a new European tribe that they were going to be Christians? There were people who resisted that. So instead of kind of like facing resistance, instead of looking for a government mandate to make everyone drink Coke, we now live in an environment where we're being kind of manipulated in that way. And is that as bad as a government mandate? I don't know. In some ways, it's probably better. In some ways, it's worse. My problem with this system that we're in the middle of isn't necessarily that thousands and thousands of competing corporations are trying to control our mind with marketing messages spread across the internet. It's that no one knows that's happening and that nobody understands how well-tracked and how well-understood they are by these companies. So let's talk about how that manifests itself on the web. Because you worked for one a company that gathered uh, web data on individuals for a while. Uh, I worked on a lot of database marketing materials for automakers. It was very eye-opening. I will say that there was one car maker, which I went and looked at the profile that would match me. It was, a, it was really fun. And I think everybody who works in this kind of marketing does this. I looked at the profile that most matched me from their car. I went and looked at the car. And indeed, my immediate reaction was, God, I want that car. That car is awesome. And I was like, oh, they've got me nailed. <laughs> so when you were working at this company, I, I, you know, I know you'd signed some NDAs, but uh, I'm, I'm curious if you can just describe kind of what 
was coming across your desk and what you were seeing that was eye-opening to you or that people wouldn't expect? Uh, I feel like the amount of data they had, and bearing in mind that this was, I believe, 1995 that I did most of this work, the amount of data they had on people and how predictive it was floored me. Uh, you know, I, I kind of like take one demographic fact. I took one demographic fact about my roommates and went and kind of saw how they had correlated with other things. And they, they essentially told the correct story of those people's lives. It wasn't as incredibly subtle and nuanced as it is now, but the degree to which we would, we, all of us special individual snowflakes actually just fit into a relational database and how amazingly good that was at predicting our next sets of consumer behaviors. There's always outliers. There was always people that didn't quite obey their profiles, but on the whole, it was statistically significant enough to base major campaigns, millions and billions of dollars worth of investing, and it would come out the way they said. What you're saying right now is that these decisions are made because people are predictable and you can see all these sort of high-level patterns. So where is the incentive for a company to go beyond that level? If all the decisions are made at this metadata pattern level, then why would they care about one individual? So there's a couple things. There's there's a whole new range of products you can offer when you've got tighter-grained uh, surveillance. If I want to go to somebody and say, I, you know, it used to be I would go to somebody and say, I want white men from the Midwest in this age demographic. I could list three or four more things. Now I could go to, and, and I want them to see this ad. I want this to get out to them. And then I think it'll have this effect on their behavior, right? Now I can be like, I want um, Silicon Valley employees who specialized, who specialized in the past in, in, um, in Django systems, but are now working in management to see this set of AB uh, banner ads and content and whichever one gets more linger on a mouse click, we're going to go with that campaign to a wider set of, of executives. I mean, I'm, I'm just like off the top of my head going with something wildly specific. You can almost name, oh, you, it's possible that you could name people, but I don't think anyone wants to like admit that we're at that level yet. Um, but you could almost just say, I want to send this thing to these six people. It's funny, like I used to live in DC and if you've ever lived in DC, there's this there's this thing about like a couple of the of the um, DC metro stops where they have these complete buy, ad buys, and you'll look at the ads and you're like, this is for six people who are on someone's staff. Like this is not for the rest of us. This is actually a whole subway station targeted that, for like a guy named Bob. But that guy right? they named might as well Bob just put his name happens on there. <laughs> to work in the Defense Department and is the guy who signs off on some huge multi million dollar contract. Why would a big company care about six specific people? Because they can't. Because it doesn't cost a million dollars to buy out a, a subway station to just say, let's do this list of things that we want to have these very specific reactions from this very specific group of people. And that can be my 15-minute Tuesday right after lunch task, and then I can move on to the next set. Uh, the ad market is incredibly competitive, and this data lets you charge just a little bit more for placement than you would otherwise. So, And one of the, and one of the kind of valid it's not so bad things people say is, well, it's not really humans that know all this stuff about me. It's machines. And that's true. And machines don't sit there making judgments about you, but people who write algorithms do. And one of the problems that you run into is that um, if I've written a program that 
has certain assumptions built in about you, about people in the world that reflects my culture and my values, and I put it out there, I might, I don't know, put out a health um, Apple Watch that can't track um, uh, periods for women because I work in a company with almost no women. <laughs> so algorithms have culture baked into them, even when machines don't specifically judge people. So that means that this marketing data is going through algorithms written by flawed human beings. And that will reflect on people's opportunities and marketing experiences. So in some ways... It could further pigeonhole people who are already pigeonholed by being disadvantaged in our society. And that is something I think we should be concerned about. One of the other things that I really don't like about this, um, that I think we should push back on as a society, is that once they have a dossier, they always market to that dossier, right? Like once there's a, there's a profile of you, you're kind of stuck as that person forever. That's your identity. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook is never going to let you change. Google's never going to let you change. The advertisers have no interest in like tracking how you grow as a person. So they're always kind of giving you like if you're if if you're in your Ayn Randian period <laughs> as a 17-year-old, like figuring out how to step back from that while your whole identity has been stapled to you by the internet. Um it means that you either kind of end up always somewhat bombarded by things reinforcing that person or you have to kind of totally you know flip and um and reject it outright which is not how most people change but google and facebook would say no our tracking actually does it it follows your changes very closely the second you google a particular book we're going to now start to feed you stuff related to that. I mean, in a way, it's it's actually m more about the sort of subtle changes you're making in your life. I would say no. I would say um, uh, that these systems reduce the serendipity that is linked to personal growth. Uh, you know, the second you kind of Google a book that is not Randian is not going to be the last time you ever have that push towards you. It's not going to be the last time you ever have that sort of news push towards you by your customized Google news feed. It's not the last time that stuff's going to come up on Facebook. Um, to some degree, I think of like the, the data dealers of Facebook and Google and the ads that we see, banner ads and all that, are just like, are like having your dealer as your roommate. It's really hard to give up a drug when your dealer is your actual roommate. And they're always pushing this identity. They gather an identity on you, and they're always pushing that back on you. From a from business model perspective, Facebook and Google are ad companies first and foremost. Uh, they just have a really captive audience. Uh, to a lesser degree, this is true of Twitter. Uh, they haven't been able to get in the game quite as well as Facebook and Google. But the way those companies make their money is by tracking you and then serving you ads. Uh, and the more they know about you, the more they can alter the content that you see in order to create the state that their customers want you to be in. Uh, sometimes that's seeing a bunch of positive things about the customer's product. When you say customers, you mean f an advertiser who wants yes. to advertise through Facebook. Yes. Yeah. The people who give Facebook and Google money are their customers. And those are, are co companies looking to advertise. So what them. are we? Uh, we're the product. We've always been the product. Uh, with TV, we were the product. With radio, we were the product. Um, uh, since since the broadcast model, we have been the product uh, that is being sold to corporations. That's what Nielsen ratings were there for. Uh, and we are still the product.
Um, there's a saying that if you're not paying for something, you're the product. But I got to tell you, even when you're paying for something, you're still the product. <laughs> but if you took 100 people and said, you log into Facebook, would you rather see a completely random set of information or would you rather see something that's catered to what we know and think you like? I imagine almost all of them would say, this is what I want to see what I like. I mean, that's the appeal of social networks. That's why they're called social, right? They have to do with the things we care about. Well, I mean, I think there's there's a little bit of a disconnect there. I think what we want to see when we log into a social network is what a, something that reflects our community. We don't necessarily always want to see something we like. We want to see what's happening with the people we care about. Sometimes that's going to be things we really don't like. Uh, and, you know, we saw that with uh, the a lot of the coverage of unrest in the last few years from Occupy to Ferguson to Baltimore, uh, we were logging in and seeing things we didn't like across the political spectrum. But it's also a way for corporations to plug into those social networks, which is, again, not all bad. You know, I, I like to paraphrase Kranzberg's first law, which was technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral, and say surveillance is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Again, my biggest single problem with this system is there's, there's not a lot of effort by Facebook and Google to inform and educate their users about how complete uh, and invasive the information being gathered on them really is. Do you think that needle's moving at all? Because recently, you know, when you sign into a Google it, a product, it asks you, do you want to be tracked? Can we take apps now, say, can we check your location or can we run in the background? Does it feel like we're moving towards more awareness? So I think that two things are happening simultaneously. One is I think especially post-Snowden and a few other things like that, people are going, hey, this thing in my pocket isn't my best friend. Maybe this is not all on my side. Uh, maybe it's taking more data than I'm comfortable with. Um, and uh, and also the hacks, the high-profile hacks um, of like celebrity cell phones and so on and so forth. And people should be viewing their phones with suspicion, and they should be viewing the cloud with suspicion because security is terrible. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, the other part is that the technology is just getting so much better. It's so much easier to, tr to track people. More and more technologies are coming out that accomplish this. Uh, browser fingerprinting is getting more advanced. Like People are just constantly spinning up new tools to let you gather more data. So there is a growing awareness, but there's also just growing capability to track what you are doing every moment of your life and what you think all the time. You know, one of the, one of the more famous incidents that people kind of, I think it, made a lot of people sit up and take notice was the 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 dad and target this is why they call it target <laughs> yeah the the dad whose uh, teenage daughter started getting material about pregnancy and he went in and yelled at target uh what makes this story remarkable is he went home and found out that his teenage daughter was pregnant and he went back to target and apologized what was the data that target had to be able to predict that Target or an agency that Target uses was placing a cookie on this girl's computer. And that cookie was tracking where she was going and what she was looking at. And where she was going and what she was looking at was pregnancy material, um, uh, material for new babies, so on and so forth, other information about getting things and so on. And so they built and attached to her name the concept that she was pregnant based on what she was looking at. That just got automatically rolled into a marketing database, selected out specific ads, didn't have any context about 
you know, her family situation. And then they sent catalogs and, and coupons and so on and so forth to her address, which was her address with her father, congratulating her on her pregnancy. <laughs> so in a way, Target knew, but in a way, Target didn't know. There wasn't a person sitting there going, ah, oh, this girl is pregnant. Let us send her things. There was just a machine that knew. But what is the actual downside there other than it's creepy and maybe I get in trouble with my dad? Sometimes dads kill their kids for getting pregnant. And does Target doesn't know which dad that is. So you don't think they should ever try and connect data to an individual to be on the small chance that something can go to re- go really wrong? I think that we should be asking these questions as a society, not as one journalist that wrote a mea culpa about how tracking works. And right now, we don't have the digital literacy and we don't have the, the media and, and marketing literacy to have that conversation. Maybe we shouldn't be sending things to people if we don't have their ages so that we're not sending this to a 16-year-old living at home. Maybe we should be, you know, maybe we should be protecting children more than we do with marketing material now. Or maybe that's not the right choice. Maybe everyone should have a link to once Target identifies that you're pregnant, maybe local, you know, support structures should also get that notification. Other people might be super creeped out by that. But the point is, it shouldn't be a bunch of marketers that nobody knows are there and me talking about this. It should be all of us talking about this because this is one of the biggest changes to our culture that's ever happened. I want to talk a little bit about the personal choices you've made uh, from your digital literacy. I mean, I will I will say that you're not in the same room as me. You are in, in Luxembourg. And I originally suggested that we FaceTime during this interview. And you wrote back and said, uh, I don't do Google. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I don't have a Google account. I don't have a Facebook account. Um, I am kind of a techno-Luddite in certain ways. A lot of it is I do security journalism. I often work with high-risk sources, or I have often in my career. Um, As a journalist, I really, really believe that journalists should not have their material in the cloud because it's subject to a third-party doctrine, which means uh, law enforcement at all levels, including weird Yahoo local law enforcement on up to federal uh, on in even some cases, private parties could subpoena that data. It's not protected constitutionally when it's with them the way it is with me. Um, That's a, that is a whole can of worms. Like the legal state of journalism and source protection is a, is a big can of worms in the U S and again, it goes, it comes back to this digital and legal literacy that journalists need to have more of, but also like your Google account. If you're in the middle of a messy divorce, your ex can subpoena your Google mail that has happened. And it ends up as part of divorce proceedings. They can't, it's much harder to get it off your computer than it is to get it off Google servers. And people don't understand that. That's something that more people should understand. (laughs) But in your piece, you even admit that when you take the precautions to protect your privacy and identity online, it turns using the internet into a chore. Yeah, it it is not fun at all. And partly that's because we as a society have traded off so much. We've traded this data away for convenience without understanding that trade. If there was more of a consumer revolt against tracking and bad security, those things could be improved with good user experiences. Long before I was a journalist, I was a user uh, interface designer and user experience person. And um, people tell me, oh, you can't have security this easy to use. And I'm like, no. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can make all this stuff easy to use. Right now, there's no motivation for anyone to make it easy to use because there isn't any consumer pushback on taking all of our data or even putting it in an insecure cloud. Is the answer, as you see it, for individuals to opt out, uh, which you've done a little bit of, or is it to apply pressure to the big companies to actually change their practices? I think it's both. I think there are things where we, I think there are probably all of us are involved in a system of two that we would just opt out of if we understood more of how it worked versus how much we're getting out of it. So we should make that, that choice consciously. There should, we should be in a position to say, hey, you know, I don't actually get that much from having a Google account. I could just do this elsewhere and then move it off. Um, I isn't was, the fact that Google is growing and growing and Facebook is growing and growing uh, evidence that people are willing to make that trade off? I think it would be if people knew what they were trading off. Uh, I think without education, we can't actually describe at all what what a, a good informed consumer decision would be here. I think if people got to actually see the information that was being gathered on them, if they got to look through the, the, the kind of grand dossiers that exist, I think they'd be pretty pissed, uh, honestly. I think if you could see what companies knew about you, you would not be happy about that. Okay, so if we're going to talk about all this tracking that's happening online and all of the scripts and algorithms that, that happen in the background when you visit a particular site, I think it's only fair that we start with our site itself, which is 538.com. And you told me about a tool called Ghostery that kind of exposes a lot of these things that are happening in the background. So I, I want to go there actually right now with you. Uh, you can see my screen. And let's just type in 538.com. And test your site. So it's doing a scan. Oh, this is exciting because I haven't used this tool before. I've just used the browser gotcha. plugin. And there we are. Oh, pretty. Holy shit. <laughs> so, yeah, you've. Okay. So, <laughs> you've got a lot going on there. So, this is all the stuff that's running on 538.com. Uh, there's Double Click, Facebook Connect. Some of the stuff, you know, you recognize Facebook Connect. That's because our comments are through Facebook. Chartbeat, that's what we use to see how many people are on a site. Google AdSense, sure, we're selling ads through Google, a Twitter button. But then, you know, Outbrain, My Fonts Counter, i2.wp.com, Adobe Test and Tar. I mean, what's going on here? Okay. So what you've got is a lot of analytics tools and a lot of um, commercial, uh, like to add tools. DoubleClick is one of the oldest advertisers, was purchased, was older than Google, but was purchased by Google. And they've been doing tracking basically as long as anyone um, and also serving ads. Uh, so if you're, so the AdSense is probably bringing in DoubleClick. Um Google uh, and Facebook Connect are both going to be tracking user behavior on here. Um, the uh, the Adobe stuff is, I think, another analytics um, product that you're probably using. Again, with any of these, you're using them, but you don't know often without going through the contract's fine language how much they're using you and whether that they take that um, that information, package it up, and sell it off. So you might be 
packaging up your readers and selling them off without really knowing that's happening. These are all the data points that are being collected, but it's really what happens when the one data set and another data set get connected behind the scenes where the the real sort of data heavy lifting happens. The magic, the magic happens. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe so black magic, we don't... but yes. And there's a, there's this uh, ghostery also has a plugin. So when you go to a site uh, in the bottom right corner, all of these things pop up. So on any given site, it will tell you, here are all the things that are running. And again, some of these I recognize, some of these are, you know, stuff that actually, you know, the words appear on the actual page, like Facebook and Outbrain. But then again, there's a lot of stuff that the average web goer probably has no idea what it what it is. Yes. But Let's go to, you know, just a random site. 538 looked like there were like 10 or 15 scripts happening at a given time. I don't know. Let's go to, I don't know, BuzzFeed. Media, we're, we're the worst. Media is absolutely the worst. Like nobody has as much. We go to BuzzFeed.com. We see, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 of these running behind the scenes. Is this average? For media sites, it definitely is. Uh, not as many sites usually have quite as much on them as journalism and media. We are literally the worst. <laughs> so we're packaging off our readers and selling them out to plenty of people in order to support our ad-supported business. Uh, if, yeah, you're, so if your business is ad-supported, you're going to have more of these. That's just the reality these days. So the New York Times, whoa, uh, <laughs> you can see the count going up here. Yeah. BuzzFeed was at 17, 538 was at 12, and there are 38, 39 <laughs> running on the New York Times homepage. I should say these are not all doing anything malicious. The degree of how malicious they are depends on what they are, how you see what they're doing, whether you think it's good or bad. Um, and some of these are not necessarily if – you're, if you're actually looking at – uh, occasionally session cookies, which are just there to say, oh, it's this person connecting back. That's the basic functionality that we intended from cookies for the beginning. I mean, if everyone installed Ghostery on their browser, how would that change people's behavior? Well, they'd have to kind of look at it, I think. I think it would be really, really helpful to install tools like Ghostery and start asking questions. Uh, I think it would be great if kids learned about this stuff in school. I think part of like learning to use the internet should be understanding that other people run programs on your computer and you should be authorizing them to do that or not. Uh, so I, I think it should be, you know, we spend 12 years teaching kids how to read and as near as I can tell about 45 minutes teaching them how to use the internet. And it would be nice to kind of bring more of this stuff even into, I would love for more grownups to know it, but I'd also love kids to have some understanding of this. Um, I would love to see us include this more in our reporting too. I'd really like to see journalists pushing that digital literacy as part of our social responsibility and our social contract, because this is part of everybody's life all the time. And almost nobody understands what's going on. And that's the definition of the media not doing its job in a democracy. You wrote this piece in, in Medium that you know, looks at a lot of this web tracking, but you actually go a step further and talk about the hypocrisy of internet journalists. What is that was that just a headline or what do you mean by that <laughs> well i do think you know we have this um this idea of our social contract our mission to inform 
our readers and let them make decisions about their lives. And we're in a bit of a hypocritical position because we're enabling this somewhat secretive, very blinded tracking of our readers who we're trying to empower and inform. So we're part of a system that's kind of disempowering people while we just don't talk about that aspect of disempowering them. Hasn't this been the compromise that journalists have made all along? I mean, if you were an investigative reporter for the Village Voice in the 70s, you know, you would do your muckraking uh, in the front of the book and then there were classified ads at the end of the paper. Yeah, but the classified ads didn't look back at people. And um, our ads are watching our readers much more than our readers are watching our ads. And I think we have a responsibility to deal with that fact, to talk about it. That's how we make our living. But we're supposed to make our living by making our citizenry stronger and more well-informed rather than our marketers stronger and more well-informed about our citizenry. Uh, So no, it's not just a headline. I do think there's an element of kind of blind hypocrisy to the whole thing. I don't think we should all give up and and quit our jobs, but we should engage with this question. And we are currently the people who deliver those incredibly valuable readers to marketers. That's why we have all of those trackers on our pages, because those people know that they can get to readers the way they want to via journalists. And that's something that that we should understand and that should concern us. I'm not saying it has to stop, but it it should be a well-informed decision for both the journalists and the readership. I mean, you used to write for Wired for many years. Was this happening while you were writing for Wired? I watched it grow up while I was at Wired, and I watched it go from one or two trackers like DoubleClick to being so many more. So I felt like even more than the journalists that I was working with, I was the hypocrite. Like, I knew what we were doing, but it, there didn't ever seem to be a good way of talking about it. Medium did give me the chance to kind of talk about it without feeling like I was going to have to get into a fight with management or the business sector of a magazine or anything like that. Um, and so I really did appreciate just going, well, I'll just do this and then it'll be done. <laughs> but um, I really did want to kind of open it up for other journalists to start talking about and asking questions about how our business models are supporting us and what those trade-offs are. All right. Well, I'm going to have to go take this uh, map that we just built about 538 to my bosses. And, and no, but we will do a follow-up, I think, show at some point. I want to find out what all those little uh, trackers are, are doing. But uh, Quinn Norton, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you and good luck. That's going to be quite a chase. <laughs> I know. We'll see. Thank you so much. Those tools Quinn Norton recommended to reveal algorithms and cookies on different websites are Ghostery and NoScript. You can find links to them on our website, 538.com. If you use them as you browse around, let me know what you find. On our site, you can also see a longer video podcast of our look at just what's going on behind the scenes at 538. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chaturvedi. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. They all do fantastic work every week, but a special thank you to them for helping keep things in order while I was away for the last few weeks. My name is Jody Avergan. You can reach me by email. Find my address at 538.com slash podcast. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. 
Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. A few people have requested a full version of the theme, so that's on our site to download now if you want. If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you.